0: Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to pick up in verse 25 this Lord's Day. And uh, it was, sorry we missed last Sunday. Uh, in the eight and a half years I've been here, um, that's the first time we've had to cancel both services on a Sunday. We try to meet whenever possible. There's times when we have weather and we're able to clear the parking lot and things and meet for 11. But uh, there was ice and other factors last week. Uh, just again, a reminder... Uh, if you're ever curious when there's weather events as to what's going on at church, um, we do post those on social media, on Facebook. We put those on Wave 3 and on WHS 11. Uh, if I can find the passwords for the other networks, we'll put them on those too. But um, they'll at least be on those too. So you can always check there and see what's going on. We try to make a decision pretty early Sunday morning um, just to keep you informed on what's going on. But uh, whenever possible, we want to gather together on the Lord's Day uh, to for fellowship, for for worship and to study God's Word together. And so we come to that now. Uh, we are in Galatians 5, verse 25-6. through 6, 5. We are now at a point in Galatians where Paul is talking about what it means to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, uh, what life in the Spirit is like. Uh, we talked uh, two weeks ago about uh, that contrast Paul gives between uh, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And where we left off in that sermon was really with a question of whether or not we're being led by the Spirit or led by the flesh. And so we're going to pick up there today, as Paul now further describes, uh, what walking in the Spirit enables us to do, and what it protects us from, and what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. So out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us today. Uh, Remembering that this is God's Word to us. This is what the Apostle Paul writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God's Word says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. If you would, pray with me. Father, there is a work that needs to take place in the heart of every person that can only be accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only the Spirit can call dead people to life. Not only the spirit can take a, a dead, cold heart of stone and, and replace it with one of flesh. And it's only through the power of the spirit that we might believe and repent. and so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work today, calling us to those very things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, speaking of snowy Sundays like last week, whenever I think of snow on the Lord's Day, I'm always reminded of the testimony of Charles Spurgeon. For those of you who are familiar with Spurgeon, you may have read or heard his testimony before. He he shared it quite often in his sermons and in his writings. In fact, just in his preaching, uh, he shared his testimony about 300 times. It took place on a snowy Sunday. Uh, it was in January of 1850, and young Spurgeon was on his way to church when a snowstorm struck him, and he couldn't actually get any further. So he turned down an alleyway, and he came to a primitive Methodist church. Uh, that was not the church he was intended to go to, but that's the only one he could get to in that weather. And so he walked in there, and he found that only a handful of others had made it to that church today. In fact, the, the pastor, the preacher, had not even made it because of the weather. And so I guess they all kind of looked at each other and then one decided he would get up and preach and it was a, a shoemaker. And Spurgeon said the shoemaker got up and he, he wasn't all that impressed by him. In fact, he said he really didn't say a whole lot other than he just kept repeating the text for that day. It was Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. Spurgeon would go on later to write this. He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look young man, look now. Then I had this vision. Not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe, and I did believe in that one moment. And as the snow fell on my road on the way home from that little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me about the pardon I had found, for I was as white as the driven snow through the grace of God. What that 15-year-old came to understand was that he indeed was a sinner in need of the grace of God. In fact, he would go on to write and preach quite often about what a wicked person he was apart from God's grace. Now, if you and I were to interact with Charles Spurgeon when he was 15 years old, we probably would not describe him as very wicked. Uh, He was a very devoutly religious young man. His father and his grandfather were pastors. His mother was a devout Christian. At any time you could find on Spurgeon by his own account, he had two books. He always had the Bible and he had a copy of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And he would read both of them throughout every day. He sought to be as religious as he could. He sought to live under the authority of God's Word. He sought to live by the commands of God. But what he came under the conviction of on that snowy day in January 1850 is that religion and works and attempts at obedience do not save us. We are saved by the grace of Christ and Christ alone. That is the message that I hope you have heard as we've been walking through the book of Galatians. That is the confusion that is being dealt with there in Galatia. Paul had come to Galatia and he had preached the genuine gospel. That we are saved by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. That our works do not save us. And yet after Paul had left Galatia, these people referred to as the Judaizers had come in and preached a false gospel. They had taught the Galatians that in order to truly be saved, you had to also have works. You needed to go back specifically to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and you had to obey these commandments if you hoped to be a part of the people of God. And even that might not get you there. And so this confusion was there in Paul's day. This confusion was there in Spurgeon's day. This confusion still exists today. I have conversations with people in this community often about the gospel. And so often in those conversations, what I find is what people are trusting in is not in Christ. It is in themselves. And they might portray themselves as Christians. They might stand and sing. You might be here this morning and think these very things. Yeah, they think they're okay, but when it comes down to it, they think their salvation is a result of their work. Of their hands. And so you'll ask someone, on that day when you stand before God in judgment. If He were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? So often, the answer I get to that question is, well, I've tried. I've tried to do my best. Or they'll default to you. know, I've never never been really bad. I've never killed anybody. As if that's the dividing line there. And so I think this confusion that Paul is dealing with is still a confusion we very much need to deal with. And that's why it's so important that we walk through books like Galatians together. Because here we find Paul giving us a very clear picture of what it looks like not only to be saved by the Spirit of God, but to be sanctified by the Spirit of God. You see, we don't become Christians by grace and then roll up our sleeves and do all the work of sanctification. No, it's a work that the Spirit does in us. And I hope that will become even clearer as we walk through this text to get today, beginning with the first point there in your outline. We see in this text that, that life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, it protects us from pride and jealousy it protects us from pride and jealousy so so what does it accomplish well in in part it protects us from these things notice verse 25 paul says if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit or walk by the spirit Paul here is using military language sort of like you might see in Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul talks about that that armor of God he's using a military picture there he's doing the same thing here when he says keep in step with or walk by the spirit he's referring to the word that would be used to describe soldiers who are marching together in order See, in Paul's day, and I think very much in our day, when soldiers would march, they would march in unison. They would run in unison. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. They would stay in that unison together. They didn't need to know where they were going. They didn't need to know how much further it was. All they needed to know was the voice of their commanding officer who was telling them, right, left, right, left, right, left. And they needed to keep in step. That's what Paul is saying is that as a believer, we've got a commanding officer as well. We've got the Holy Spirit calling out to us the Word of God, calling us to obedience, calling us to faith. And as the Spirit calls, our response needs to be one of repentance and of faith where we are staying in step right, left, right, left, right, left with the Spirit. And yet we see in the Christian life there are times that We are tempted to disobey the Word of God. We are tempted to push away from what the Spirit of God says to us through the Word. We are tempted to march to our own beat or to the call and the commands of the world we live in. See, if we walk in the Spirit, if we keep in step with the Spirit, we're going to be at odds with the world around us. So it's very tempting then to step out of line to get in step with the world. That's why... the. Scripture tells us very clearly that there's a wide path there that's very tempting. And yet we know it leads to destruction. So what Paul is clarifying here, I believe, and the reason he's using this language is to help us understand if we want to walk with the Lord, if we want to keep in step with the Spirit, it begins with this need to understand we have to obey God's commands and do what God calls us to do. And when we don't do those things, well, then we get out of step. And he warns us here about that he tells us that unless we are walking with the Spirit, then we're going to struggle with different things. For example, verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. And so when a person steps out, when they're no longer in step with God's Word, one of the temptations then can be to become conceited, to become boastful, to become prideful. Now, when we think of boasting, sometimes we, we just think of that as a certain attitude somebody has, like a different uh, athletes maybe might come to mind. One that comes to mind for me as I was thinking about this was, if you ever saw interviews with Muhammad Ali, he was somebody who really boasted about himself. Um, I read uh, one story from a flight attendant who said that uh, she was there on a flight, and Muhammad Ali was on the flight, and she went to him and said, uh, we're, we're taking off, you need to buckle your seatbelt. And then in a very flamboyant fashion, he just said, well, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And she says, Superman doesn't need an airplane, so you need to buckle your seatbelt. You know, there's this kind of boasting that we think of like that. But, but what Paul's referring to here is, is very much a pride rooted in those who believe that they've done enough to deserve heaven. Rooted in those who believe that they've been good enough, that they've accomplished enough things, that they deserve to go to heaven and have a right standing with God. He's referring, I think, to those who had fallen into this teaching of the Judaizers. Who said, well, if you want to be a part of the people of God, then you need to do these things. And so, anytime you're given a list like that, it's very easy then to feel prideful about it. I mean, we probably, I think, all to an extent wrestle with this. That there may be certain sins in the world that you just don't struggle with. And it's very tempting to turn on the evening news or to open up the paper and to see this sin presented of the world and to think, well, well, I'm not like that. I don't struggle with that. To almost feel kind of prideful when you see the lostness of the world around us. It's tempting even within the body of Christ. And I think that's what Paul's referring to here. To look at another brother or sister who perhaps is struggling with something you don't struggle with, it's tempting to become kind of prideful. To kind of get a big head in the midst of that. Paul says here, it actually can lead us to provoke one another. That that word provoke in the Greek means to challenge somebody to a contest. It's when someone become so prideful and so arrogant that they just kind of intentionally are pushing those buttons. They want to pull you into a fight. They want to prove how right they are and how wrong you are. Now, maybe you've had this experience before of being told that you're wrong about something. Who likes that? (laughs) Who enjoys that? I've been a part of many marriage ceremonies and I've I've never had one at this point where the the bride or the groom has turned to one another in the context of their vows and said, I I just want you to know that I I am committing to telling you how wrong you are every day of your life. (laughs) And by the way, I'm don't do that. That's not a good idea. Not suggesting that, and yet what we find often in a marriage relationship or even in close friendships, and I think we should see it within the body of Christ, is that when you're close to someone, that they're going to expose things in your life to show you where you're wrong, and you're going to do that for them. And and that should happen in a gracious environment. But so often what happens is when someone tells us we're wrong, especially in marriage, well, we just kind of get real defensive. And then we kind of strike back, and then we just start provoking one another. Paul says here that that all comes from pride. And that pride is not a fruit of the Spirit. That pride is a work of the flesh. The Spirit leads us a complete other direction. Philippians 2, verse 3. The Spirit leads us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. To look to the interest of others. So the Spirit doesn't say, well, wait your turn. The Spirit doesn't say, well, let others speak first. The Spirit says, no, others have something more important to say than you do. Others' thoughts about this, they're more important than yours. Others' needs, they're more important than yours. Be humble. That's what the Spirit calls us to. And so as we're keeping in step, as we're walking with the Spirit, as we're listening to that call of our commanding officer, that draws us then to humility. And when we're not humble, that draws us then to repentance. But when we step out of line and we begin to feed that pride, well, we can provoke one another, we also can become jealous of one another. Paul says here, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. When we looked at this two weeks ago, that, that work of the flesh. That, that envy, jealousy, resentfulness. That happens when we start to compare ourselves to others. And we start to think, well, 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 how come things are so easy for them? How come I've got to deal with all this? It's not fair. I deserve better. They don't deserve that. And that, as we allow it to continue, just eats at us and eats at us and eats at us. And that is not staying in step. It's hard to stay in step with people that we resent. It's hard to stay in step with people that we are jealous of. So Paul says here, if we want to stay away from this jealousy, this envy, this conceit, this pride, we need to walk by the Spirit. We need to have life in the Spirit. And as we do that, then we can better see, when someone else steps out, how it is we are to deal with them. This brings us to this second point, point two. Life in the Spirit then empowers us to confront sin in our church family. It empowers us to confront sin in our church family. Paul begins there in verse 1 by saying, brothers, now this is important, that that... Note there means that he is speaking to brothers and sisters in the faith. He is speaking in the body of Christ. So this is not an instruction for believers on how they are to deal with sin in the entire world. The Scripture speaks to that, but here, specifically, Paul is saying, okay, you Galatians who are in the household of faith, let me tell you how you are to treat one another when someone steps out. When someone's not walking in step with the Spirit. When someone is disobedient to God. When someone is caught in any transgression, he says. Now, he doesn't tell us what the transgression is. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you how to deal with so-and-so. No, he could be referring to any of those things that we saw there uh, two weeks ago in Galatians 5, verse 19. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, jealousy, rivalries, anger, all those things listed there could be something completely different. Because he says, any transgression, the context here would suggest that he's not speaking of those who are just openly rebellious towards God, but more so people who have lapsed and fallen into sin. The Scripture says, sin so easily entangles us. And I think Paul here is saying, this is a brother or sister in Christ who they were marching along with us, but they got entangled by sin. Now here's how you are to deal with them. And he says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now some people read that verse and think, well, there's the, there's the hook. I'm, I'm off now. I don't have to do this now because it's those who are spiritual. <laughs> you know, those super Christians. The, those paid professionals. The, the pastors. Or those, those really dedicated folks. The deacons or the Sunday school teachers or the, the folks who've been walking with the Lord for a lot longer than I have. Now, those spiritual people need to do this. And yet, spiritual is in the context here of those who have been saved by the Spirit and are being sanctified by the Spirit. Essentially, he's referring to anyone who's a follower of Christ, who is walking in step with the Spirit. And so essentially, Paul's saying this, you are either someone who is obeying God, and you need to be on the lookout for those who aren't, that you might gently restore them, or you're somebody who's not obeying God, who needs to be gently restored by those who are. You're one of two here. You're one or the other. There's no middle ground of people who just get to step back and observe casually, well, I wonder how this is going to turn out. No, He calls us as Christians to restore people who have been caught in a transgression with a spirit of gentleness. And that word restore there is a a medical term Paul uses. It refers to setting a dislocated bone. I'm not a medical professional, but... I know enough to know that if you have a dislocated bone, something needs to be done about it. If you have a broken bone, something needs to be done about it. It's not going to heal correctly unless it's put back where it needs to be. And that process is a painful process. But that painful process then allows for healing to take place. And if you never go through the pain of that process, you're never going to have correct healing and what Paul's saying here is that to confront a brother or sister in christ in their sin that is a painful process but it is a process that will promote healing and outside of this we will have a very dysfunctional body just like we would if we never dealt with dislocated bones or broken bones it will not be the way it should paul says we are to do this in a spirit of gentleness that goes back to the fruit of the spirit the spirit's fruit is gentleness in our life And so he says, when you confront sin, do it in a spirit of gentleness. And yet we live in a day and age where so many just don't confront sin at all. And oftentimes when they do, they do it in many different ways, but not with a spirit of gentleness. In fact, in dealing with the sin of others, that can promote pride in our lives. We can tend to look down on people. We can get angry. We can get confrontational. And yet we have a picture in the Scripture of what this is supposed to look like. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now hear the words of our Christ. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus and what he says. He says you are walking in step with the body of Christ and someone sins against you. This happens all the time. <laughs> That this has happened probably to every person in this room. There is someone who has sinned against you and you have sinned against them. And Jesus says, here's how you handle it. You don't go tell the whole world about it. You don't gather together your prayer group and talk to them about it. You don't share it as a prayer concern among a bunch of people. You go to that person and to them alone. Why? Because the hope is that you will restore them. I mean, consider this. Have you ever had a situation where you thought someone had sinned against you and you talked to a bunch of people about it and by the time you got to them, you realized there was a miscommunication. They really hadn't done what you thought they did. And yet now you've got all this mess out here that's been created. Jesus says we avoid all that if we will just obey His Word. So we go to that person in hopes that as we confront them on sin, as we say to them, listen, I notice you're not walking in the way we're supposed to be walking anymore. Now, there's a clear evidence of the the work of the flesh in your life. This is not the fruit of the Spirit. And as we call their attention to the Word of God, we're calling them back to the Word. Jesus says if we do that and they listen to us, that we've gained our brother. But if He does not listen, He says take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This actually goes back to the Old Testament and how charges were established. And it fits now in the New Covenant in the New Testament. Because He says, listen, they may not listen to you, but you need to take a couple of folks with you and you need to go back and we need to try again. Why? Because the goal is to restore them. And so you take those brothers, those sisters with you. You lovingly, graciously speak the truth in love. You call them to God's Word. And now multiple people who are marching in step with the Spirit are going back to that person saying, listen, this is not good You're disobeying God. And we're calling you graciously to repentance and faith. Again, that that is a painful conversation. But it's a pain that promotes healing. Because he says, if they listen, again, you've won a brother. But then, if they refuse to listen, well then, you tell it to the church. And so now, essentially, we've taken it to the whole platoon. We've taken it to the whole body. We've said, listen, we need to pray for this man, this woman. We need to pray for them that they have forsaken the command of God. They have abandoned God's Word. That they are running away from the Lord. They are refusing repentance. We need to pray. Why? That they might come back. But then he says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Gentiles were those who were born outside of the family of God. Tax collectors were those who were within the family, but they chose to live like they weren't. And what Jesus says there is, here's a person who should be marching in step with the Spirit, and yet they are living like the world, and so we are handing them over to the world. But our prayer is that they would come back. The goal is always restoration. Now listen, this is not a suggestion from Jesus. Jesus. This is a command from Jesus. This is how we are to deal with sin in the church. This is how Bloomfield Baptist Church is to deal with sin among its membership. And when we don't do this, it's not just those people who are out of step. Now we are all out of step. Because now we are all disobeying God. So we've gone from having those who have pulled away and they're not walking with the Lord anymore to because we refuse to deal with the pain of confronting sin. Now, none of us are walking as we should. We must take seriously the call of God to deal with sin in the church today. And one of the reasons I believe that so many churches are in the mess that we're in is because we've stopped dealing with sin. And in an effort to come across more gracious and non-judgmental, we fail to prepare people for a judgment that they will definitely stand in front of before a holy God. And so, Paul here is saying, we've got to do this. This is a command to do this. As we do this, we can restore them in. And then, we can bear one another's burdens. Which brings us to point three there. Life in the Spirit then equips us to bear burdens in our church family. Verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now what burden is Paul referring to here? There's many different ideas about this. I think this text can be applied in a number of situations. I think it's certainly in line with other Scriptures to say that when there's a brother or sister struggling with something, it might be finances, it might be just physical suffering, it might be just sudden calamity in their life. That we are to rally around them. We are literally to try to pick that load up off their shoulders. But I think specifically there's a context in which Paul is writing. Remember, he's dealing with sin. He's telling us to stay in step with the Spirit. He's telling us not to walk outside of that. He's telling us when people do, to restore them back in. And then he starts speaking about burdens. And that's a phrase, that's a word we see there used in the Scripture often to refer to sin. Sin. in fact, there's a great picture of this in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan tells this story of the pilgrim who we come to know as Christian, and Christian is journeying from the city of destruction uh, to the celestial city, to, to heaven, basically, going from the lostness to being saved, and he's got this tremendous burden on his back. And so he starts out on this journey, and people will ask him how he came to get this burden, and he says he came to get the burden by reading this book, and the book is the Bible, And so he's under conviction of sin in his life. He's got this burden of sin, but he can't do anything to remove it. And so there's people who come along to him, much like the Judaizers did to the Galatians, and they say, oh, well, here's what you can do to remove it. You can do this to remove it. Go go see uh, Mr. Morality. He'll take that off for you. And yet, the only place he is able to get the burden off his back is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And along the way, there's many people who encourage him that very direction who come alongside Him, who help Him by saying, look to the cross, go to the cross, keep on the path, keep moving forward. And friends, I think that's what it means here in this context to bear one another's burdens. We are to preach the Gospel often to one another because the Gospel is our only hope. And if you've ever been told in your life by someone representing this church or another that, oh, well, if you really want to see things happen, then you need to stop this and start this and clean things up. And if you just do this and they give you this list, friends, that's not gospel. In fact, that's a false gospel. The gospel says this. You and I were born in sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And no matter how hard you try or how hard I try, the wages of that sin is death. We deserve rightfully the wrath of God. Now many people will say, well, I've not done anything that bad. I mean, I'm not a murderer. I mean, the wrath of God, that's kind of extreme, isn't it? Go back to the garden. What did Adam and Eve do? Adam didn't beat his wife. Eve didn't pick up a stone and kill her husband. They ate of a fruit off a tree that God commanded them not to eat from, and that was enough to condemn them. And friends, I don't know the sin in your life any more than you know the sin in my life, but I can guarantee you this. We've done a lot more than eaten a fruit. We have disobeyed God in many other ways. We rightfully deserve the wrath of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, we read in Romans 5 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who deserved no death for sin, who was sinless, He took God's wrath on the cross in your place and in my place. Why? That we might then have forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ. That this beautiful exchange takes place on the cross where He takes the death we deserve and we receive the life that He deserved. We receive His righteousness and it covers us. And then this work of the Spirit calling us away from our sin and calling us to life day after day after day. This is the truth of the gospel. But if you don't respond to that truth, then you can never walk in step with the Spirit. Because you're going to be hearing a different commanding officer every day of your life. You're going to hear the commands of legalism. You're going to hear the commands of morality. But you will not hear the Spirit. And that will lead you to frustration and ultimately according to Scripture that will lead you to hell. The only hope that you and I have is to trust in the cross of Christ and that is where our burden can be taken off. It's not just what we see in the Pilgrim's Progress. It's what we see throughout the Scripture. And Paul says here that, that as we do this, as we bear these burdens, as we point people towards the cross, he says that we are fulfilling the law of Christ. Well, what is that law? We've well, already covered this in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. He says that we're to serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And so again, in the context here, I think what Paul's saying is the most loving thing we can do for our neighbor within the body of Christ today is to lovingly, graciously confront them on their sin. And yet we've totally turned that around, haven't we? We think the most loving thing we can do is never say anything about sin. And so there are churches today where you will never, ever hear a mention of hell. And you'll never hear a mention of God's wrath. And you'll never hear a mention of condemnation. Now listen, I don't preach those things because that is comfortable for me or because I desire those for you. It is a painful thing for me to consider people that I know and love spending eternity in hell under the wrath of a just and holy God. And so at that moment, I can either choose to build a whole faith system based among my emotions, or I can choose to stay in step with the Spirit and to search the Word of God and to see what it says. And to see, I deserve God's wrath. We all deserve God's wrath. But in His grace and love, He's called us out of that. And we have the opportunity to call that out to others as well. And that is the most loving thing we can do for them. The most unloving thing we can do It's to never speak of the Gospel among a lost world. The most unloving thing I can do for you today is to tell you, well, here's a list of three things to do and you'll be okay. (laughs) Try a little harder. Just just do a little bit more. Just, Just write a little bit bigger check and it'll all be good. That's the most unloving thing I could do because that's not preparing you to stand before a holy God. And if we truly love one another, We will do everything in our power to speak the truth of God's Word even when it's painful. Even when people don't want to hear it. Even when the response is insults and persecution. But if we go the other way and we choose to ignore sin and we don't warn people about the judgment that is coming, that is the most unloving thing we can do. Jesus calls us through His Word, to speak the truth of the Gospel, to point people to the cross. That is the only way their true burden will ever be taken off their shoulders. And the last point is this. Point four. We're reminded in this passage that life in the Spirit prepares us then for the final judgment. And So I think that's where Paul's going in this passage is he's talking about walking by the Spirit and keeping in step by the Spirit. He's talking about preparation for that final day. And so he says here, verse 3, for if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Then verse 4, let him test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. Now that sounds almost like an invitation to pride. (laughs) Well, let a person boast in his work. But again, what's the context Paul is saying here, listen, you're not going to stand before God one day and say, well, I was a lot better than that guy. Oh, you think I'm bad, God? You must not have met my brother or my sister or my neighbor or my pastor or whoever. You compare yourself to others. That's why we feel so good and feel like we've earned our salvation is because we can look around at the world and say, well, at least I'm not like them. But what God's worth saying here is, you think you're something? No. You're nothing compared to the holiness of God. You want a standard of comparison? Then you test your work by the standard of God's righteousness and then see how you measure up. You don't test it according to your neighbor. So let me ask you that question this morning. How does your life measure up to the standard of God's Word? Are you hearing it? Or are you doing it? Now James gives us that picture in James 1.22. Be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I mean, imagine how ridiculous it would be for me to come in here this morning and say to you, "Well, I just got back from looking in the mirror, and man, I haven't changed a bit since I was 15. <laughs> this full head of hair, and I mean, listen, when I was 15, my mother would take me to the doctor because she feared I could not gain weight. In case you can't see, well, I gained weight but how foolish would it be for me to look in a mirror and to see my face and my body and yet to in my mind think, well, that's not what I look like. I look like something else. And then to walk around as if I looked like something other than what I am. Paul says, if you do that, that's as foolish as you walking out of this church this morning and bearing the name of Christ and your life looks nothing like the things of Christ. And Not just foolish. He says that will condemn us. He says when you look at that mirror, that mirror is the Word of God. Are you a doer of what it says? Again, there's a slippery slope here. We're not saying we'll just go obey all these commandments and that will save you. No, what we're saying is for those who have truly been redeemed by the saving work of Jesus Christ, our life should look different. And we should be trusting in Him for that difference. That's why I believe he says, verse 5, For each will have to bear his own load. I think again what Paul's pointing towards here is the final judgment. And I think what he's saying is this. That there's a load that nobody on this earth can bear for you. But only Christ can. And it is the burden of your sin. And you will either stand before God saying that you have borne that burden, that you have earned your salvation, that you have done good enough works to overcome that sin, or you will stand before God having trusted in Christ for Him to bear that load, and you will stand there unburdened. And you will not be boasting in your righteousness, but you will be pointing towards and covered by the righteousness of Christ. Friends, hear me. There are no braggarts before God on the day of judgment. That there's nothing you have to offer. There's nothing you have to say that overwhelms the judgment you deserve. And so we will stand before Him in condemnation because we attempted in our good works and efforts to lead a good life. Or we will stand before Him as those who realize even our best works are filthy rags before a holy God. And we will stand before Him covered in the righteousness of Christ. And that happens, friends, when we heed the Word of God and we do what it says. That same passage that was preached to a 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon is the same passage we need today. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God has shown you and me grace today. He is giving us an opportunity to repent. How will you respond to that? If you would stand with me and pray. Father, I do pray that we would, that we would see clearly if our true belief is that we will stand before you and declare our own righteousness, Lord, if that's the state of any person here today, God, I pray you overwhelmingly will help them to see that they, they are not in step with the Spirit, that they are not walking in step with your call to them and to us. They are disobedient and they need to repent. Lord, I, I pray for others who perhaps have done that very thing, they have. They have realized their sin and their need for a Savior. They have trusted in Christ. They have walked in step. But perhaps along the way, Lord, they have become entangled in sin. Perhaps they stumble. Perhaps they're struggling. Perhaps there's some here this morning, Lord, who are just overwhelmed with guilt. That they just feel shame. That they feel embarrassment. Maybe nobody else in this room, maybe nobody else in this world knows what they've done. What they've been involved in but but they just feel this, this shame and this guilt because of their sin. Lord, I, I pray that they might understand the truth of Your Word, the call of Your Spirit, that if we'll confess our sins, You're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Lord, I pray that, that our trust would not be in the work of our hands, but it would be in the finished work of Christ, and that we would call on Him now for forgiveness, that we'll call on Him now in repentance. That we would truly trust in You and not in ourselves. Lord, this is a work on what You can do through the power of Your spirits. I pray that You would do that now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.